Hey guys, the grass is greener after the snow goes away, isn't it? Uh, my name's Evan, if we haven't met. Um, you know, Rimrock Downtown, this community right here, started like four and a half years ago. And it started and it continues to be simply a collection of individuals that desire to worship God, create a community, and then serve other people. There are no paid staff. There is no set leader. We are simply a bunch of volunteers, those of us that you see up here, um, who are following God's direction to do what we feel like he wants us to do. This is a beautiful community, and it's stayed that way due to all of the positive things that can come out of it. You know, but... Well, the one thing we do not want to happen is for this to turn into like a Lord of the Flies situation. So we need to get together every once in a while. And so on May 11th at 6 o'clock down here, we're just going to have a roundtable gathering to talk about this community and where we want it to go, where we think that God wants it to go. Um, it's a sweet, we're in a sweet position. You know, we, um, we've been doing this for quite a while. Um, we have more kids in the back than we a lot of times have adults out here. The lease is up in a year. And so it's just kind of a prime time for us to maybe take this to a different spot. So with all of that in mind, it's just a cordial invitation. Please come and be a part of this community if you want to be a part of this community. Feel free to talk to me more about that um, or any of us about that if you've got questions. But that's just who we are and that's who we've been and I have a feeling that's who we're going to continue to be. All right, so tonight I wanted to uh, start off with a, with a quote and then a couple questions for you. Um, so somebody once said, one's view of God determines how much, excuse me, one's view of God determines much of his view on life. One's view of God determines much of his view on life. How we see our creator has major impacts in the way that we see the world, ourselves, and others, and therefore determines how we live our lives. You know, think about the influence that a child's view has, uh, in, uh, the influence of a child's view of their parents has on the child's life. You know, for children who feel loved, supported, cared for, accepted for who they are, you got to think about the confidence that this breeds within the individual, within that child, and how secure they are regardless of the circumstance. But then think about a child who does not feel loved, does not feel supported, does not feel cared for, and how much that must wreck the way that they operate in this life. You know, the same is true for us and our view of, of God and who we think he is and how we think he sees us and wants to treat us. So let me ask you some questions. And this is personal. How does God feel about you? Answer that on your own. In your own mind, from your own perspective, how does God feel about you? Right here, right now. How does God feel about your sin? About those times where you have blatantly, maybe not so blatantly, either way, you've disobeyed him and you've done things to hurt other people, 
How does God feel about that? Is God a part of this world? The almighty creator of everything, is he a part of this world? Is he interested in your day-to-day life? Now, the beauty of the Bible, we get to see approximately, I don't know, 15, 1600 years of history in which God interacts with humanity. And so we get a chance to see what God is like then. He does not change, so what he is like now. And in my opinion, the God of the Bible is defined by his grace. And this grace is like gravity. You know, it's a new series that we're starting tonight. We're going to do it for just a month, basically the month of May. So let's start picking this apart. You know, before we go any further, let's pray. Let's uh, just realign our point of view, um, remind ourselves of why we get anything of worth from the next half an hour. God, we are here because you are our priority. Um, Maybe not our entire life priority, but at least for the next half an hour, we give up everything else so that way we can focus on you. Um, So I ask that you would pour what is good into our minds, into our emotions. Uh, Give us what we need to have. We trust you. Amen. Okay, so let's start by picking this apart a little bit. Let's, let's define grace. Somebody once said that grace may be defined as unmerited or undeserving favor of God to those who are under condemnation. Unmerited or undeserving favor of God to those who are under condemnation. So what you deserve is condemnation, punishment. But what he is desiring to give you is favor, goodness, things that will enrich your life. You know, if you look at the Bible, big picture, which I do all the time, maybe too much, but this is what I think defines our reality. The Bible presents the history of humanity. From the beginning, we destroy a perfect world by rejecting the plans of our perfect creator. Instead of pouring out just judgment by annihilating a creation that just rejected its creator, God's grace, his undeserving favor and goodness is like gravity. All right, let's define gravity. Most of you, if not all of you, graduated seventh grade, so you probably have an idea of what gravity is. But just in case, gravity is defined when one object attracts another. The molecules of one object pulling on the molecules of another object. So the deepest part of an object pulling on the deepest part of another object. So tangibly, the gravity of the sun and its pull on the earth is what keeps us revolving around our source of light and heat. The oceans rise and fall due to the gravitational pull of the moon. Because of gravity, all objects stay fixed on the earth. This includes the soil and the rain that falls from the clouds, which allows life to continue. Even more essential, without gravity, our atmosphere would disappear and the water in the oceans, rivers, and lakes would float into space. Without gravity, life would not exist. All right, enough middle school science. Let's connect this analogy to what we're talking about. God's grace is like gravity. Our creator is a source of life. If you wouldn't mind putting that verse up, Carrie. Psalms 36, 9 puts it this way. For, you, for with you is the fountain of life, the source of life. In your light, we see light. 
So without his light, we have no light. Without him, we have no life. He spoke this entire world into existence. The fact that we exist today in this moment is because we are orbiting around our creator. It is the gravity of his grace that allows the sun to rise, the rain to fall, and for oxygen to exist. Without the source of life, there is no life. Right? It seems pretty simple, but if you think about how that applies and connects to our very moment right now, it's huge. Because of God's favor towards humanity, we have been given today. You know, in order to make our daily existence more abundant and profound, the gravity of his grace extends far beyond our basic needs. A major form of God's grace is through his redemption. It's kind of what we're going to delve into a little bit deeper tonight. To do that, we're going to look at the story of Jonah. I'm sure we've all heard of Jonah. What's amazing about this Sunday school tale, how it's often seen, it's about far more than a man who was swallowed by a fish and then spit out onto the beach. It's only four pages long. That's why it took me a little while to find it. All right, so I mentioned this just briefly, but the reason why it's important to look at a story of Jonah is because God does not change. The way that he treated people in Jonah's day is the same way that he treats us. The way that he redeemed people 2,700 years ago is the same way that he redeems us today. So as we look through this historical account of the way that God interacted with Jonah and the Assyrians, we can understand who this God is for us as well. You know, the first part of the redemption, I want to look at the redemption of one's soul. Does God care about our soul? And if so, how does he redeem it? So let's start walking through the story. You know, Carrie, we'll have him up behind you. If you have your Bible in front of you, that's awesome too. So Jonah 1, 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So to understand this story a little bit more, this tale, we've got to understand what Nineveh is. It's a city, the capital city of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a really large and cruel uh, nation that existed like 800, 700 B.C., and they were a ruthless enemy of Israel. That's where Jonah is from, from Israel. So this is a ruthless enemy of Israel. They were the first nation to have a professional army. And they used that skill so well. Man, and what we have in like the British Museum and other places where it's been documented is how cruel they really were. Like we have, um, there's pictures of men skewered from the bottom to the top. Piles of heads, pregnant women with their bellies slit, just horrible things that this army did. And by doing these things, they, they conquered a mass majority of the Middle East. A vast majority of the Middle East. One of the first major world powers. We know Babylon, Assyria is right before him. So it makes sense why God was sending Jonah to talk to him. Let's see uh, a little bit more of the story. So in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. So Jonah set out 
and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three-day walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You know, it makes sense why a perfect creator would pronounce judgment against such a wicked and violent civilization that was intent on dominating the entire world. Let's keep going and see how it turns out. Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone great and small put on a sackcloth, like showing mourning. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with a sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloths, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. Now, logically speaking, why would a perfect creator turn from the destruction of such a wicked people simply because they cried out for his mercy? By sitting in ashes and not eating, why would that change the mind of a just judge bringing destruction on a wicked people. Let's see what God does. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Take a moment just to consider that. Let the weight of that hit you. Why would he do this? Why would God turn from bringing a just judgment upon the enemies of his people due to simply them showing that they felt sorry, that they were repenting from their ways. You know, it seems to me that the God presented in the Bible desires above all else to show his creation grace. In this case, in the form of mercy. Now grace, we've already defined, unmerited, undeserving favor to God. Mercy is more, you do not get what you should get, right? Grace is you get what you don't deserve, and mercy is you don't get what you deserve. It's incredible. You know, in Ezekiel 18, God puts it in an even more straightforward way. He's talking to Israel at this time, near the end of their nation's history. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, all of you according to your ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, otherwise iniquity will be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed against me, and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. This is incredible. You see the heart of God through the mouth of God. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord. Turn then and live. You want to see a God of the New Testament that desires the redemption of all of humanity? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. Turn then and live. 
You know, due to God's overwhelming love for humanity, he will change his mind from carrying out just judgment when a person is willing to repent from their selfishness and turn to trust God instead of trusting themselves, others, money, popularity, drugs, the list goes on and on. God's grace in the form of mercy is limitless. Trust me, I don't care how much you know about God's grace, you do not believe that fully. God's grace is limitless in the form of mercy. There is no amount or level of wickedness, past, present, or future, that he will not forgive if a person is willing to repent and choose to trust God. You know, the example of the Assyrians continues forward. Within a hundred years from this occasion, Assyria would brutally destroy 95% of Israel everything but Jerusalem itself. Even though God knew this would occur, his love for the people in Nineveh during Jonah's day and their desire to turn to him brought grace-like gravity into their lives. You know, Isaiah 55, I believe, kind of puts it this way. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now how ridiculous is that to the human logic? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord due to how he will pardon. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, my desire to pardon, to forgive, higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It doesn't matter how logically we perceive somebody's actions and the way that they hurt you or the way that you have hurt other people. God's pardon is extended to all that desire it. You know, application is obviously so relevant. No matter what we do, God's mercy is available. It does not matter who we hurt or how we've hurt them in the past or in the days to come. God's desire to draw you back to the source of life is unchanging. In the way that your feet are firmly fixed to the ground due to gravity, God's mercy is available to you to keep you securely fastened to the one who made you. When you call out to God seeking forgiveness, you will become like the trees, permanently plugged into the source of life. Permanently. You know, what's even more incredible is that, the, is that God is the one who initiates our chance at redemption. Without sending Jonah, the Assyrians would have had no idea that redemption was a possibility. The same is true for us. God is constantly drawing us back to him. In the way that gravity draws us to the earth, God is continually pulling you back to what is life. Whether it is through the complex beauty of nature, the morality that is deep within your soul, or through your longing to have more goodness in your life. We all have these different things pulling us to God. God is always giving you reminders of the opportunity you have to be redeemed from the brokenness of this world. But what's amazing is that the gravity of his grace does not only exist to redeem our souls, it is also here to redeem us whose souls have been saved from our flawed lives, which we live out day after day. You know, we uh, skipped over a large part of the book of Jonah, the part that deals with 
Jonah himself. So let's go back into, into the story and see what's up with this man. You know, the first three verses again in the first chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the one we're focusing on, saying, Go once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and he went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish was 2,000 miles away from Nineveh, a year and a half journey. You know, they only knew so much of the world at that time, and Tarshish was basically on the edge of the known world. So why would Jonah flee? Why would he go that far? It's like us finding a way to go to the moon. You know, it seems from this story that Jonah was a patriot a man that loved his country far more than he loved his enemies. He knew that if he declared God's judgment in Nineveh, there was a chance they would repent and God would show them mercy. You know, it comes right out of his mouth. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 4. Chapter 4. When God saw that they, what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring about them, and he did not do it. Now Jonah's reaction. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live. Man, what a childish reaction. You know, to see something so rash and childish like this, it shows me that Jonah's love for country and hatred for Assyria must have been a major influencing factor on his life. Because he was a prophet before this. We see it in First or Second Kings. And so this is what he did. But then given the opportunity to go and bring redemption to a wicked people due to his patriotism, due to his hatred for what was different, his love for what he knew, he ran from God. So why would God call a man with this level of prejudice to be his representative of love and mercy? It's odd, right? Because I'm sure he could have found another prophet that would have done it without issue. I believe it was to redeem Jonah from his personal brokenness. Let's see how God does it. He brings about multiple teachers, I'm going to call them tonight, to help Jonah learn the lesson that God had for him. The first one is a storm. Verse 4 in the first chapter. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon that sea, upon the sea, that the ship threatened to break up. The mar- then the mariners were afraid and each cried to his God. So what's Jonah doing during this time? Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. What the word? He's in the middle of a hurricane, running from God, and he is this comfortable to sleep? He's obviously unwilling to pay attention to what God is bringing into his life. So God's got to up the Annies bring in another teacher. 
this time through lots. Verse 7, the sailors said to one another, come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity is upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. It's amazing. God is all powerful. Influences things that people use for other forms of like worshiping other gods in order to show that Jonah is the reason why this is happening. Wake him up. So that way we can teach him the lesson a little bit more. So they go and wake him up. Verse 11 and 12. Then they said to him, Why shall we do to, what, should, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for, for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. So he's admitting that God is in control, that God is the one that brought this, and he, his disobedience is what is causing it. But does he willingly just jump off the boat? No. So he's still very hesitant to do what God is asking him to do. So therefore, God has to bring in another teacher. The men throw him off the boat. But then God brings in another form of grace. Instead of allowing him to perish in that wild sea, the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Imagine what that would have been like, being in the belly of a whale, most likely, for three days. Most likely give you some perspective on what your life has been like and how you should have been living it. And who is in control? You know, in chapter 2, we see Jonah finally come to his senses while in the belly of the whale. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. It's like a man hitting rock bottom. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord. See, the teachers finally taught him the lesson. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed to be a prophet, to be a man of God, I will pay. I will go to Nineveh. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the, excuse me, the fish and it spewed Jonah out upon dry land. You know, God caused Jonah to go through a major ordeal in order to teach him that his heart, that's the deepest part of who we are, our minds and our emotions, were not fixed on his creator and willing to do whatever he desired. Instead, Jonah was allowing the gravity of his own selfish desires to direct the course of his life. See, that's the thing about gravity. Its pull does not come from only one object. Everything that has mass or substance has a gravitational pull. 
For Jonah, his thoughts, his own thoughts and logic had a stronger attraction than God's desire to show the wicked mercy. So Jonah gravitated away from God and his goodness and moved closer to his own brokenness. But God, due to his intense love for Jonah, wouldn't allow him to walk away without a fight. Like I said, God does not change. So in terms of application, it's the same for us. If you are a believer, a follower of Christ, one who says, God, I need you, Jesus, you are the way for that redemption, you have two different forces continually pulling at you, the flesh and the spirit. You know, the flesh is defined more or less as the instincts that we are born with and that our culture encourages and refines within us. You can categorize them kind of in two, two different categories. Self-centeredness, it's all about me, and pleasure-seeking. I want to do what feels good for me here and now. You know, we naturally do what is best for us, especially when it feels right in the moment. You know, the spirit, on the other hand, is God's desires for how we should live. And that can be categorized in two as well. We got selflessness. I do not live for myself. I live for God. I live for others. And humility. I do not know the best route. I cannot do this on my own. You know, Galatians 5, 16 and 17 puts it this way. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. So we have two conflicting forces that are continually pulling us towards themselves. And it's our choice, moment by moment, which one you're going to choose to follow. But the most beautiful part of this is that we are not simply left alone to fight out of our own power. Like Jonah's case, God intervenes in endless ways, which is sometimes hard, which is sometimes terrible, right? Ask Jonah to encourage us to choose life over death, the abundant over the stagnant. You know, as I was studying through this the last week or two, um, just kind of thinking through examples in my own life, where this has taken place, where God has intervened in order to give me, to encourage me, to pull me out of my selfishness. And man, it's just story after story after story from big or small that keeps coming to my mind. Um, and I'm just, I don't know, I'm not really sure which one to share, but I, I, I've just kind of decided to go with one of the bigger ones. And a story that some of you know about me, I used to be like really strongly addicted to smoking weed and drinking. It was just what I did for like 15 years of my life. And from the beginning, from the time I was like 15, I felt God saying, you don't want to do this. And bringing one teacher after another into my world, whether it was people speaking to me right, in good and bad ways from God or from their own conviction, relational issues, specifically with my parents or my wife, things starting to fall apart because of my selfish choices, even down in the last couple of years to physical issues, right? I can't, I can't eat gluten without it giving me a terrible hangover, so therefore I can't drink good beer, right? I got a major brain injury a year ago, and now alcohol throws me off even more, so I can't even touch alcohol. Right? And it seems that God has brought in so many different styles of teachers in my life. Each one has brought me closer to surrendering my own fleshly desires 
so that I can be pulled away from myself and pulled closer to the source of all that is life. And, and we all have these stories. We really do. And if you start nitpicking through and really viewing your own life through this lens, you start to see things like, man, I didn't even understand that that was connected to me being redeemed from whatever. I thought it was coincidence, but now looking back with hindsight, I realize there was far more in play than I even knew at that time. So let me ask you some questions. I spent a lot of time thinking about it. What thoughts keep coming to your mind day after day, week after week, month after month, maybe even year after year? What things do you feel like you are called to do but have been unwilling to do? Let me ask you another one. What idol keeps being challenged in your life? Money, your dependence upon the size of your bank account, how nice your house is, the car you drive, the way you dress, how good your business is. How about the approval of others? How your friends feel about you and talk about you. Getting recognition from your boss or coworkers or your teachers or your coaches. How about pleasure-seeking, doing what feels good in the moment in so many different ways? Any of those being challenged in your life in the last month, year, decade? What teachers has God brought to you to break your tendency to obey the flesh? Think about people. Could be your parents, could be your kids. And you got young kids, they are teaching us so much about patience. The fact that our life is not our own any longer. Could be bosses, coworkers, employees. What about the teacher of circumstance? Things coming into your life randomly that completely throw off your your normal life, whether it's sickness, whether it's issues with your business, whether you lose your job. What about emotions and your mind? You ever feeling your emotions just churning around a certain topic where you just can't let it go? It's what wakes you up at night. First thing you think about some mornings or you just randomly see billboards or verses or hear people talk about something, just like, man, this is awfully coincidental that this just keeps popping into my life. You got to think about the God of the Bible being omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful. So he understands what you are struggling with, your flaws, and the intensity of the love that we see in here and the way that he interacts with Jonah, he wants to help you remove that flaw. And so he brings it in in such a gentle but continuous way. 
know, if you have chosen to trust God to redeem you, then your soul is eternally secure. That's what we see God's approach to, to Nineveh and the Assyrians. However, your mind and your emotions are still in the battle between the spirit and the flesh. One side is the source of all that is good in your life. The other is born out of the brokenness of this world. It is a battle that we will face for the rest of our time on earth. However, even as we are in the midst of the struggle, the gravity of God's grace does not waver. We were created by a God who desires above all else to redeem us from the brokenness of our life. That's what the Bible says cover to cover. He is instrumental in bringing about the changes that need to occur within our soul and our physical lives. God is the source of all that is good in this world and will continually bring you opportunities you need to live a more abundant, worthwhile life. The choice, however, is fully yours. You know, as the musicians come back up here, I just want to ask you another question to consider. Does your view of God line up with the God we just saw in Jonah? Does your view of who God is line up with what we just saw about who God is?